Let's open our Bibles, please, to the fourth chapter of the book of Amos. Amos chapter 4. Now, we gave you a division beginning with chapter 3. And if you'll notice, the first words of the fourth chapter in your Bible says, Hear this word. Chapter 3, verse 1, you had, Hear this word. In chapter 5, verse 1, you'll have, Hear this word. We have here three vocal words of warning, or three prophetic speeches, you might want to call them. And each one beginning with, Hear this word. We had the first one in the third chapter, Hear this word. And we dealt with it in the third chapter, and that's where we finished up. So the fourth chapter, you have another one, and that covers the fourth chapter. But in the fifth chapter, where you have hear this word, it covers chapter 5 and 6. The last one covers two chapters. And these are three messages uh, concerning Israel. Three prophetic speeches. Three vocal words of warning. In the first one, we had in chapter 3, verse 1, it was a message of approaching judgment. And in this one... In the fourth chapter, verse 1, it's the accusation is aggravated. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, it's a lamentation and a plea. So we, we'll have details in chapter 4, verse 1, as we look at it in detail now. So uh, <clears throat> in this fourth chapter, verse 1, we have a couple of things we'd like to point out that covers verses 1 through 5. First of all, it's Israel's judgment is deserved. We find that they deserve what uh, God has spoken of here, and we see that they receive their just desert for it. And also in 4 verses 1 through 5, you might have another companion thought in that it, there's, there's a divine threatening and an irony. An irony about what he's saying, because we'll find out he tells them to go worship when they're not, their heart is not in it. And he says, this is like you. This is the way you do. You go ahead and worship, even though your, your heart's not in it. And I'm just paraphrasing what I'm thinking. He says, this liketh you, in verse 5. But we'll pick it up with verse 1. It says, Hear this word, ye kind of Bashan, that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor. Notice what's accused against them. Which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, Bring and let us drink. So we find here the very first thing is that the revelation of the degraded uh, women is spoken of here. Ye kind of Bashan. The word kind uh, speaks of uh, cows. And the cows of Bashan are noted for their sleek and well-fed condition. Their choice pasture. They had the very choicest pasture. And he's likened them to those that are in the pasture and are well-fed and taken care of. And yet... At the same time, they say, you bring us something to drink. Look, in the last part of verse 1. Bring and let us drink. While at the same time, verse 1, they crush the needy and they oppress the poor. So we find that uh, they, they don't care for anything but themselves. And verses 2 and 3 show us the results of this degradation. Now, uh, there have been many that have applied this not only to the women of Bashan or, the, or Israel in this uh, verse being addressed this way, but to anyone, to all, to Israel as a whole, that they're addressed as uh, simply in these words to show that all of Israel is guilty as well. Not just womankind, but uh, the whole of the nation, the male population as well. But it seems to be directed in the form of this, ye kind of Bashan. 
that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, Bring and let us drink. It shows that they cared for nothing but themselves. In verses 2 and 3, the result of such degradation, it says, The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that, lo, the day shall come upon you that He will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. And you shall go out at the breaches, every cow at that which is before her, and you shall cast them into the palace, saith the Lord. I want you to notice this. It says, He will take you away. God has sworn by His holiness, verse 2. And He says, The day's coming, the day of their judgment, the day of recompense, that He will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. Now, the, it's said, and if you study it out, literally, the, the Assyrians did literally lead their captives with hooks through their lip. Uh, I have that reference from Haley's Bible Handbook. Many of you have a little book, Haley's Bible Handbook. It's very convenient to have. You'll find it, I believe, on page 322. And he's talking about this very same incident, where that the Assyrians would lead their captives with a, a hook in their lip, and some have said hooks in their jaws that they would lead them about into captivity. And they went into captivity. And God said here that the day is coming. The day shall come upon you that he, that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. And in verse 3 he says, And you shall go out at the breaches, the openings the, uh, in the wall. Every cow at that which is before her. And you shall cast them in, into the palace, saith the Lord. So we find that will be the result of such degradation as is seen in verse 1. Now then, I want you to notice verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> this is a vindication of sacrifice. And notice what it says. It says, come to Bethel and transgress. Come to Bethel and transgress. God is calling them to come and, and sin. Tran- sin is a transgression of the law. And they were to come to Bethel, Bethel the house of God, and transgress. So here's the irony of the thing that God is talking about. And then he says, At Gilgal, multiply transgressions. And look, and bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings. Now look, the last part. For this liketh you, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord God. This is like you. Like you to pretend to worship. Now, uh, there was no altar at Bethel, but at Jerusalem where God had specified. And you know, to worship any other place than where God has specified was forbidden. God wanted them to worship uh, in the proper place. In fact, if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 12, if you will, Deuteronomy chapter 12, he tells it, they were to come to the place that he would choose and put his name there. And at this time, it was Jerusalem. But let's look in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And let's read verse... uh, he says, well, verse 4 says, You shall not do so unto the Lord your God, but unto the place, look at this, which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither thou shalt come. And for the sake of not uh, uh, going into all the details, he tells that they would offer their burnt offerings and pay their vows and do so and so, and rejoice before God and all that God had given to their hands and Then on down in verse uh, 13, he says, Take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest. He says, Take heed, give attention, but in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes, and he repeats it, 
He says, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there thou shalt do all that I command thee. And so back there when he says, go to Bethel in the book of Amos and transgress, go to Bethel, uh, and he says, bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years, their vows and their tithes and their worship was all connected. He's saying, this is a, a word of irony. He's saying, this is like you. This is what you do. You don't go where I tell you to go. You go where there's no altar set up. And of course, even saying going to, going to Bethel. Remember, Bethel was uh, called the house of God. And Bethel is a place that was really sacred. It was not the place that they were called upon to go and worship at this particular time. So they were tr- transgressing in more ways than one. They were desecrating that name of that place where uh, Jacob met the Lord. If you go back to the book of Genesis 28, look in Genesis 28, and it speaks of Jacob. And uh, let's begin reading with verse 17. He was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. After he'd had his experience with the Lord. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone which he had put for his pillows and set set it up for a pillar. From pillows, a place to lay his head, to a pillar, a place of remembrance, and poured oil upon the top of it. He anointed it. And he called the name of that place Beth, but the name of that city was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house, Bethel, and, and of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth to thee. So Jacob, Jacob not only vowed that this place would be called the house of God, but he vowed that this place would be where he had promised God to give the tithes. He said, of all that, that uh, you give me, I'll give the, surely give the tenth to thee. By the way, Jacob vowed this vow. Some people say, well, tithing's under the law. This was long before Moses, long before the law ever entered. And Abraham gave tithes before that, didn't he? So we find that <clears throat> the business of tithing and honoring God with a, with a tenth was long before the law ever entered. So don't ever think that just because you give your tithes that you're doing it in obedience to the law. You're doing it under grace. And you can read over in the book of Hebrews where it says, Abraham gave tithes. Before it entered, and he says that his sons Levi and they and, and Levi gave tithes on down. We find that uh, all through the history, not Abraham's sons directly, but we're talking about later on through Moses, but and through uh, others that gave tithes as they were commanded to give. But Abraham gave them voluntarily. <clears throat> it doesn't say he paid tithes either. It says he gave tithes. But anyway, we go back to this. Uh, notice that. Uh, it says in Amos chapter 4, verse one, uh, verse 4, Come to Bethel and transgress. So this, what we're saying here is this was a sacred place. And then notice it says, At Gilgal, multiply transgressions. Now, Gilgal is the place where uh, the children of Israel were circumcised after they had been delivered out of Egypt and uh, the ones that had not been. And uh, it was a, uh, Joshua said, This day is the reproach of Egypt rolled away. You look in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 9. Joshua 5 verse 9. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you, wherefore the name of that place is called Gilgal unto this day. 
Gilgal means rolling, or rolling away the reproach of Egypt. And they uh, submitted to the, to the uh, covenant relationship that God had with them before. And so we find that both of these places, hold your place in Amos chapter 4, if you will, both of these places, Bethel and Gilgal. But notice what he says, come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgressions. You just multiply transgressions there. Because this is a place where you were supposed to be delivered from Egypt and the sign of it that you were separated from it and the reproach of Egypt is rolled away and your, Egypt is a picture of the world. Your separation to God and multiply transgressions. And notice he says, and bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Verse 5, with leaven. Now leaven is a picture of of evil, isn't it? And proclaim and publish the free offerings, for this liketh you, O you children of Israel, saith the Lord God. Now, there was a time that they offered uh, with leaven, but it was an exception to the rule. But a thank offering was only in place when the people were right, in a right state with God. And here they were not. So this thank offering, these thank offerings and free will offerings, were not being offered in the right spirit and in the right way. You remember we told you at one time that that the Lord said to the children of Israel when they would bring their burnt offerings and their sacrifices, He says, I'm sick of your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. And why was He sick of them? God instituted it because they didn't have their heart in it. They were just worshiping with an outward form with no inward reality. And you know, I, I hope and I pray that God's people today will not do that. Worship with just an outward form and no inward reality to their feeling of worshiping God. We find that that's the case in, in some instances. I trust that when we sing our songs, we sing the words of those songs with our heart meaningful. You know, I love that brother. What brother uh, Mel led us in a little bit, bit ago. It was on my mind this morning. That whosoever, whosoever surely meaneth me. Sometimes, you know, you get to wondering and say, I'm glad God included me. And then we get our doubts and fears. But that whosoever meaneth me. And it means all of us who trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And uh, we uh, have different emotions, different feelings. But he did mean me. And he means you. He means all. But uh, when we have a heart in it, in our songs that we sing, and our heart in our prayers that we pray in our heart, in our worship from our heart. Uh, that's the, a wonderful thing, and God expects that. In fact, Jesus said that at Jerusalem, even this, we've talked of Bethel here, and we've talked about the fact that Jerusalem was the place then that they were to worship. But remember, Jesus said to the woman of Samaria, He says, for the time has come and now is when the true worshiper what will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He says, it will not be in Jerusalem nor in this mountain that you're talking about. Remember, she brought up Jerusalem. She says, should we worship in this mountain or in Jerusalem? But let, let me remind you what it says. In the book of John, I believe you'll find it chapter 4. And, and I want to read it to you for because I believe it will be beneficial. The woman of Samaria, and let's notice what... And it's in relation to the place of worship and, the, and how we worship God. In chapter 4, uh, verse 20, she said, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, she just took it for granted that that's what Jesus said. He didn't say that. But we know that in the Old Testament days it was Jerusalem. And it was the holy city. 
And it was a place of worship that God had set aside. But Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, now look, and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So you see, that verse of Scripture back in Amos 4, verse 4, that had to do with the place of worship. We find that also uh, Jesus pointed out that uh, in the New Testament, you'll find in Matthew 18, verse 20, where He said, Where two or three are gathered together in My name, there am I in the midst of them. So it's the gathering of God's people together, and Jesus has promised to be in their midst. And we know that it relates to, the, especially like it relates to the local church when we're gathered together in Christ's name. All right, let's back in Amos chapter 4, verse 5. And notice what he's saying about this. And offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven, and proclaim and publish the free offerings. Well, that's one thing that we're not to do, proclaim and publish. Proclaim and publish. Tell how much you give and when and free offerings. No. It says, for this liketh you. Notice what he says. This liketh you. That's like what they would do. This is what they love to do. O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord. In fact, if you have a marginal reference, it says, so ye love. This liketh you. This is what you love to do is make a big deal out of your worship, putting it in plain language. So we find that uh, that has to do with what we've been talking about, that the, the vindication of sacrifice and the irony that is attached with what God is saying to them. Look at verse 6 now. Verse 6 through 11, we have Israel's judgment demonstrated. It's demonstrated in several ways, and this is going to be a detailed study, and it's very worthy of our notice. He says, And I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and one of bread in all your palaces, yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I'm going to read quite a bit, then we'll come back. And also I have withholden the rain from you, when there were yet three months to the harvest. And I caused it to rain upon one city, and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon, and, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. So two or three cities wandered into one city to drink water. But they were not satisfied. There was not enough for all. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Now, notice this is like a refrain. You find it in verse 6 and verse 8. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have smitten you with blasting and mildew when your gardens and your vineyards and your, when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased. The palmer worm devoured them. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Your young men have I slain with a sword, and I have taken away your horses, and I have made the stink of your camps to come up unto your nostrils. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Now notice, verse 11. I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and ye were as a firebrand plucked out of a burning. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. All these things showing... Israel's judgment, and how it's demonstrated by these various things that you uh, find repeated here. First of all, in verse 6, you have a famine, cleanness of teeth in all their cities. On down, where there was lack of rain and the lack of bearing fruit, we find a drought. And we find also blight. We have a blasting and mildew. And then you have pestilence. 
the pommel worm devoured them in verse 9. The pestilence. Then you have uh, in verse 10, I've slain with a sword. You have the sword or war. All of these things have come or would come upon them. What is it? He says famine, drought, blight, pestilence, and war. There are five things that are pointed out here. And you find this, the last part of verse 6, you have a repeated refrain. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. This was what God expected them to do when these various judgments would come upon them. These are chastisements that were meant to bring restoration. God was chasing them them in order to bring them back. And he said in spite of all of the things that he did, they still would not return. You know, we find rebellious people today, but Israel was rebellious against God. Tremendously so. So everything that he did did not accomplish its purpose. And he would remind them. He had brought this... uh, First of all, he'd brought this famine, and they wouldn't return. He'd brought the drought, and they wouldn't return. He'd brought the blight upon their crops, and they would not return. Blasting and mildew, he said in verse 9. And their vineyards and uh, oliveyards, their fig trees and olive trees, and the palmer worm would devour them. They brought the pestilence, and they still wouldn't return. Then he had overcome many of them with war, with the sword, in verse 10. In the last part of verse 10, yet... Have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. And then he has overthrown them in verse 11. God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And they were just like a firebrand plucked out of the burning. They were just barely spared or taken out a remnant of them. And he says again, Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. There was scarcely to bread. In the, the spring rain was withheld. The pestilence was set among them. And yet... They would not return. You know, when we think of of famine, and this number that I have in my Bible here, written as a footnote, is small compared to today. But it was said that every year, 24 million people die of famine. And my notes, some of them are 10, 12 years old or maybe older. So, you know, the famines in... We remember the famines all over uh, Africa and various places in the world. And they're still there. And so, every year, at that particular time, 24 million people died in famines. And so he's speaking of the terrible chastening that he sent upon Israel, too. They were had their famines. Remember Joseph down in Egypt in the 42nd chapter of Genesis through 45. You'll find Joseph was sent down there to help during the famine. His brother sold him into bondage, into slavery. And he finally told him, he says, you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to preserve you and your family, to preserve life and to preserve the nation. And God preserved Israel through that famine because he chose Joseph to go down into Egypt in the way that we would never suspect being sold into slavery. You know, God has a purpose in everything. And old Joseph down there in Egypt, remember he was put over all the land as second to the ruler of the land, given him power, gave him the ring on his hand, the signet of authority, told him, it says, no man will either do anything without your permission in all the land of Egypt. And Joseph knew by that dream, the dream of the, the, that he interpreted that there was going to be what? The interpretation of the dream said it's going to be seven years of drought. I mean, seven years of plenty, first of all. And there's going to be following that seven years of drought and famine that they would not be able to even remember the good years. And so Joseph was chosen to store up grain and store up grain so that they could make it through the bad years. And all those seven good years, he stored it up. And if you'll remember when it got real bad, when Jacob, the father, heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent the brothers down 
Joseph's brothers down to buy corn. They went down to buy corn. You know the story how that they came back with the corn and the grain and they were fed. And Joseph kept one who wasn't kept down there. Simeon, was it? And he said he was held as a hostage, so to speak. And Jacob says, Joseph is not. He thought Joseph was dead. You remember the story about that. And he says, Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and and, uh, and Joseph had said, you have to bring Benjamin, your youngest, down before you can get any more corn. And he says, Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and he says, you will take Benjamin away also. And he says, all these things are against me. Poor old Jacob. And he didn't know that all those things were for him. You know, sometimes when we say, all these things are against me, it's God working it out for our good. And finally... It did work out for his good. Joseph was still alive. Simeon was not being harmed. Benjamin was okay. The whole family was brought down into Egypt with wagon loads of, uh, of people. And they got down there and they saw uh, Joseph and were was reunited. But we find that the story is that God can take care of us through the famine. But he sent this famine for Israel here in the book of Amos. He was trying to teach them a lesson yet again. I wonder if during this time that Israel remembered what Joseph had done many, many years, hundreds of years before in the days of Amos. I wonder if they remembered anything about it. Do we remember what God has done for us in the time of famine? Do we remember what God has done for us in the time of drought and blight and mildew and pestilence and sword, even war? And God has delivered us from the, the, the powers of war that have come up against us. It would not hurt for our nation and our people and you and I to be reminded that this nation has survived many wars and God has brought us through them because I believe He's brought us through them because we were in the right. And I trust that we'll always maintain that we'll maintain that right relationship when we do have to go to battle that it will be for the right cause. And we're in a situation nowadays that it's this it's scary in this world where you have nuclear weapons being uh, uh, formed and made. And you know, by the grace of God, that we're not blasted off the earth today. And I'll tell you, when you talk about the atomic bomb, that's mild compared to nuclear. And when you think of what happened over in Japan during World War II, and we know how horrible it was, and yet I'm not going to get into the pros and cons of whether it should or should have been, but I believe that's the only way that we could have ended it at that particular time. <clears throat> And it's a tragedy that so many people have to suffer and be killed and suffer the uh, the results of outright war. War is not never an easy thing to face, and it's never going to not involve civilian population. They talk about uh, not bombing civilians and not attacking civilians. The nature of war is that it's going to involve civilian casualties. And so we better pray that during this next time that's before us, and we don't know what's going to happen. And I'm not up here to try to be a politician. I'm just trying to say we need to pray about it. Because God has seen us through it. And we know that we need to maintain the right cause and right purpose. But notice all these things that are spoken of here in the book of Amos chapter 4 that we're dealing with. And we got down, we read about the famine in verse 6, and the lack of rain, the drought in verse 7. And uh, and in verse nine, we've read about the blight and the mildew, and verse and the the uh, pestilence in verse nine as well. And then in verse ten, the sword, and then 
we find that the last statement was, God said, I have overthrown some of you. Verse 11, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, He was showing that it was His judgment upon them, so they were spared as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. And then He goes on to say, Yet have ye not returned unto Me, saith the Lord. So, complete destruction. Destruction all the way through. You know, sometimes God's judgment has to come. And God's chastening does come. But God's judgment will not necessarily cause men to repent. In fact, most of the time they will be hardened. You know, Paul said in Romans 2 verse 4 that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. If you get over in the book of Revelation, turn to Revelation chapter 9 quickly and we'll try to hurry and give you this lesson. Revelation 9, God tells us, and I won't read the whole context, but let's stop, let's pick up with verse uh, uh, 18. It says, by these three, and these tells about the judgments that come then, by these three, there were scorpions, there were, uh, there were various things that came upon the people. But he says, By these three was the third part of men killed by the fire, by the smoke, and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. Now look. And the rest of the men which were not killed. I want you to see this. The rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorcerers, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. In spite of all the terrible judgment then in the book of Revelation that's yet to come, we're going to find that it doesn't. It causes men to, to fail to repent. It does not bring them to repentance. Thank God when one little... You know, I'm, I'm thankful to myself for this, that when one little thing happens to me, I begin to say, Lord, what have I done and what ought I to do? I begin to check it out and say, God, I certainly don't want to bring any chastening hand upon myself. I had time. I'll take time for just a moment. Second Samuel 24. Look at Second Samuel 24. We'll try to hurry. Second Samuel 24. When David had sinned and his heart smote him in verse 10. Second Samuel 24, verse 10, he says, And David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly. And then the prophet came. He said, I've done very foolishly. The last part of verse 10. Then the prophet Gad, David's seer, came to him. Verse 11, you just kind of sketch down with me as you go. And he told David in verse 12, this is 2 Samuel 24, verse 12, he says, I want you to choose one of these things. God's going to give you three things. Now I want you to choose one of them. So Gad came to David, verse 13, let's read it from there. And told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine, says David, are you going to choose famine? Come unto thy land, or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies, the sword, while they pursue thee, or uh, there be three days pestilence, three choices in thy land. Now advise and see what uh, answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us not fall into the hand of, let us now, let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. He says, I don't want the war. I'd rather have God's pestilence. I'd rather have the things of God. 
So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the time of the appointed, and there died of the people from Dan even to Bathsheba 70,000 men. So we find that even then, David chose what? He chose rather to be turned into God's hands. He says, for great is his mercies. That was his choice. He said, I'd rather, I'd rather God deal with me than, than wicked men and sword and war. So what we're trying to say is <clears throat> that sometimes when judgment does come and chastening does come, it's only of necessity that God brings it. Now, I want to hurry there. On down. Back in Amos, hold your place and we'll finish this chapter uh, quickly. He said in verse 11, I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and ye were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. He just saved them, we say, by the skin of their teeth. He just plucked out a remnant. Yet have you not returned to me, saith the Lord. It did not bring them to repentance. Now verse 12 and 13. He says, Therefore thus, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, Prepare to meet thy God. That's a military term. He says, prepare for this war. Prepare for this that I've already said. He says, because they have not returned, you need to be ready to face the consequences. You know, we've, you've heard preachers say, prepare to meet thy God, and use it in the form of an invitation. But Amos is not using it that way. Amos is using it where he says, it's, you're, you're now ready for the battle with God. You now have to face the judgment. Because he had said time and time again, yet have you not returned unto me. And he's saying, prepare for a military conflict with, with the Lord. Prepare to meet thy God. And that's the essence of that word there. It's what it means. Remember when we told you in the book of Joel, before we come here, when God said, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. And we told you at that particular time that it was not multitudes there ready to make decisions. It was multitudes there in the, in the valley of God's judgment. And in Joel we gave you that. The same thing Amos is pointing out. There comes a time when God says, now it's warfare. Now it's judgment. And that's what he's saying in the book of Amos. Okay, what is the lesson? Take heed that we do not go too far. That God says, now it's war. And I'm talking about with God. See what I mean? Don't cross the deadline. That's why Amos said all these uh, previously words for three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. What was he saying? For three transgressions of Israel, and then Judah and then Israel. He gets six heathen nations. Remember we discussed those? For three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Then he comes down in chapter 2, I believe it is, and he says, For three transgressions of Judah... I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Then for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. So when he says, and for four, I will not, that means that judgment is determined. So help us not to come to the place that he says, prepare to meet thy God, in the sense that is used here in a military term. Now face the warfare with God. That is too late. You've tipped the scales too far. God's people need to be called to repentance today. And I'm not saying that, that the same things that applied to Israel of old apply to us, but the same principles are involved, that God chastens us, and He tries to bring us back to Himself. Now, I'll close in saying this. I'll read this, but I'll close it with these last thoughts, and that is this. 
that remember after World War II, preachers were going out. I went to seminary. And in fact, uh, it was some while later. But on the other hand, it was after the war was over. Remember, a preacher could go out and you could go to any community in East Texas or West Texas or anywhere in uh, probably the United States to a little town. And you could rent a storefront building and you could get people to come out and they would listen to the Word. I mean, it was not... It's... Ten times harder to start a little local church nowadays than it was in those days. People had thought about what we'd gone through. And I really mean that because uh, the churches that I know of and had experience with and uh, had a part in in various places, they were, I mean, the preacher would go there, open up the doors, he'd go out and invite people, knock on some doors, and people would come. He'd get them to knock on some doors and they'd get people to come. What do you have now? You have a day of laziness, of laxity, of not doing, and people, un- and you have the people that you do invite that are unconcerned about it. Think of what what does it matter whether I go to church or not? What does it matter about building a young church, a new church?